Today's episode of WMFA is brought to you by Creative Nonfiction Magazine. Simply put, Creative Nonfiction is true stories, well told. Learn more at creativenonfiction.org today. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and today I'm speaking with David K. Randall, whose new book, Black Death at the Golden Gate, is out now from W.W. Norton. David is a senior reporter at Reuters and the New York Times bestselling author of Dreamland and the King and Queen of Malibu. He lives in Montclair, New Jersey. Black Death at the Golden Gate is a gripping work of literary nonfiction about the race to stop the bubonic plague from spreading through San Francisco and beyond in the early 20th century. It's a propulsive, deeply researched narrative that centers around two doctors and their near-constant efforts to eradicate the disease and discover its origins. I didn't expect a story about the plague to be so timely, but David takes care to emphasize issues embedded in this history that are also unsettlingly at home in the 21st century culture. Fake news, media manipulation, political obfuscation and grandstanding, xenophobia, racism, the distrust of science. He weaves all these ideas together deftly while still telling a story that is, ultimately, about people. David and I are old friends from journalism school, and it was great to catch up and be able to help share his work. That's part of what makes WMFA so much fun. Here, we talk about how he makes time for writing books while also working a full-time job and having a family. We also talk about how he accesses the interior worlds of historical characters, why he considers creative constraint a good thing, and the period of history that fascinates him most. You can hear a bonus segment from our conversation, in which we talk about the works of historical literary nonfiction that David keeps on his desk for inspiration, by joining the WMFA Patreon community at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. Yeah, there's not like some quality deity who then gets to come down and cast the judgment like you did a good job or you did a bad job. Well, I wanted to maybe just jump in with, I, I was going to ask you this question anyway, and then you get into this story a little bit in your acknowledgments, but it's kind of funny the way that the book came about. So could you just talk about uh, what got you started down this path? Sure thing. So my last book was about the um, the family that used to own all of Malibu, California, and how they got it and how they lost it. And in that book, one of the main characters, he was kind of like the Rockefeller of early Los Angeles. He's one of the most the wealthiest, most powerful people in California. And he was going up to San Francisco a lot um, because that was, at the time, the, the most important city uh, on the West Coast by far, but, but and especially California. And he's going up there, and he, he writes a letter back to his, his wife, May, and he says, you know, this is the most, this is the wickedest place I've ever seen. And I thought, oh, wow, that's cool. You know, <laughs> what's, what's going on here? I want to find out um, what's happening. And so I started looking through old issues of you know, the San Francisco Chronicle and San Francisco Call and other newspapers at the time. And I started seeing all these articles about, you know, rumors of the bubonic plague and how um, it wasn't, you know, the bubonic plague is here. You know, we need to be careful and we need to save ourselves. It was the health department says the bubonic plague is here and they're trying to steal money from us and we can't trust them. And it almost sounded like this complete upside down world that no one trusted the health department and no one believed that the bubonic plague, which you know could kill millions, was in the city, and they didn't want to do anything about it. And I had I lived in the Bay Area. I lived in Berkeley for a couple of years, and I had been to all of the places that later ended up playing a huge role in in the story. And I had never heard of the bubonic plague in California. You know, I, I grew up in California. I never. It also came to Los Angeles in the twenties, 
And I never heard of any of this. So it almost seemed like an alternative history. And it felt very, it was very intriguing to find, um, to unravel, you know, why wasn't this a bigger deal? And why isn't this something that everybody heard of? When it was because of a small team of doctors that millions of Americans did not succumb to this terrifying disease. Right. Well, that was something that I was really struck by um, kind of from the beginning. And I hadn't expected to find so many modern parallels. I mean, as you're saying, I mean, essentially fake news of of this like campaign to just kind of keep this information out or twist it. And then like the the attack on the legitimacy of science like that, that was really striking to me. That was one thing I also didn't realize I was going to be writing about so much. So I started working on this, um, you know, late 2015, and I think we sold it around March of 2016. So this was before the election. This was before, you know, the idea of, of fake news was even something you talk about right. that much before, you know, Facebook had all of its scandals and everything else. It, at, at first, it just seemed like a fun, you know, or fun, fun in quotes because <laughs> we're talking about the plague. Um, <laughs> It seemed like a fun medical thriller that here's here's a small group of doctors who save the country. And it seemed a lot like a, a book I like is Stephen Johnson's The Ghost Map. Mm-hmm. And it sounded like a, you know, a U.S. version of The Ghost Map. And it sounded like, OK, this is something fun and I can I can jump into. Then as I started doing more of the research, you know, after the election in 2017 and, and 18, it started bringing in all these different dimensions that I hadn't seen before. And perhaps I wouldn't have picked up on. If things in you know in today weren't as they are, mm-hmm. um, so I started picking up that you know there really was this strain of of denialism, both science denialism and also just the legitimacy of of public health and, and media that you wouldn't really trust what was in front of you for for various reasons, and and some of that is historical. Um, medicine really wasn't that far removed from essentially medieval medicine. Mm. You know, they didn't really, it was only beginning at the time that people understood that germs cause disease, that you need sanitation. The x-ray still hadn't been invented yet. Um, so it was really, you know, still kind of the dark ages of, of medicine. So you, you have this idea that public health can matter and that um, sanitation even can matter just seemed completely foreign. Um, and it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't all that long ago. Right. And and then, of course, the idea, you know, the, the, the racial undertones of how of how people understood the disease. Exactly. It almost there were doctors who were saying that, you know, um, white Americans can never catch the bubonic plague because they ate meat. They didn't eat rice. You know, it was very direct in that way. And, in you know, some doctors even thought that, you know, Europeans had somehow evolved immunity against the disease, which which is just insane. You know, California at the time, too, for so long, so much of its history, it had been a state, but it had been a state that wasn't connected to the rest of the United States. You know, gold was discovered in in 1849 and became a state within a year or two. It was very hard to get to California. It seemed like it was its own nation. And at that time, a lot of the immigration uh, was from Asia, whether it was Japanese or Chinese. So some of the immigration fears and immigration scares and hysteria that you see today Play was a huge part of California's history and something that no one ever talks about. Um, the mayor of California, when the bubonic plague was first acknowledged, he later re- he later became a U.S. senator, and his one of his campaign slogans for his reelection campaign was literally "Keep California White," 
and you you never think of that uh, of California as that today. You think of California as you know a diverse place where it's progressive and there's you know there's a lot of history that needs to be unpacked. But um, all of these things, you know, xenophobia, racism, fear of science, fear of not being able to, to essentially do whatever you wanted to do, all combined to allow this terrifying disease to kill you know, over 200 people in the country. And it was only by really luck that some one of those people did not get on a train heading to Chicago or New York and tens of millions more died. Right. And I think that's what's so, I don't know, I want to say like exciting. I know it. I mean, like you said, a medical thriller, I know it's all real. And so it's maybe like a, a silly to maybe talk about it in those terms, but, but it's so, it is such a thrilling kind of piece to work with as you're crafting the narrative. Um, I was really struck by how much it did just kind of come down to those, at first came down to those two men and the differences in their personalities. Mm-hmm. And once Blue got there um, and was able to work with an, a Chinese interpreter and and be more just personable and respectful to people, um, how f- how far that went toward furthering their understanding of the disease. Yeah, what... It- one thing it's it's kind of crazy to do as you as you focus more you know as I focused more on like historical journalism is that how much of history is just made up of personalities and and decisions that are just by one or two people and the reasons that go into those. So one of the the main characters in the book is a, was a doctor named Joseph Kenyon, and he was a genius. You know, he was considered one of the best doctors in the country. Um, he knew more about the bubonic plague than anybody else in the U.S. Um, he had trained with some of the best you know, doctors in Europe. But he was one of those people whose social intelligence could never really jump over into helping him become as effective as he wanted to be. Whereas then later you had Rupert Blue. I mean, Kenyon was essentially run out of town. The state legislator, state legislature, they you know, had state senators saying that he should be hung or hanged. And everybody said that he was just trying to to fool the city when he was terrified. You know, the, the disease was continuing to spread. And he knew from studying outbreaks in places like India or places like Hong Kong, how many people could die. You know, 15 million people had already died from the bubonic plague worldwide before it got to San Francisco. And this was a time when the first time in history where someone could get on a train and move so quickly and spread it so quickly to other places. So, you know, once he's run out of town, you have Rupert Blue come in, who was nobody's idea of a genius. You know, he barely graduated from medical school. Um, no one thought much of him at all. And eventually, essentially, his main talent was just being nice. You know, people liked him. It's true. You make a good point in the book that because he wasn't, you know, Kenyon wasn't, was so much more at home in the laboratory. And that gave him this very strict mental framework. And because Blue didn't have that, he wasn't, it was all, it's almost that, that idea of like, you know, when you, I mean, it's a far, far different thing, but you know, if you pick up, if you pick up a, a skill or an activity, you know, non-traditionally or like without an education necessarily, you know, you're, you're kind of not bringing all the baggage of that thing along. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Um, you're not necessarily stuck into whatever your lane is. Right. You're much more willing to say, Hey, what, whatever works. Um, you always see that with people who kind of teach themselves music, um, that they're willing to just fiddle around and try and do whatever they want, as opposed to saying, you know, I have to go from this chord progression to that one because that's just the way you always do it. 
this is your third book, uh, but your second historical book. Um, and so when you're doing that research, do you, do you find now that, that your first step is finding those characters that you can kind of build a story around? That's a good question. I think it, you have to have kind of a, a mix. Um, yeah, I think a story without characters is just kind of a topic. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's interesting, but it's very hard to, to care that much. So, you know, with the Malibu book, it was interesting that, you know, one of the main, the other main character besides Frederick Range was, you know, his wife, May Range, and she ended up becoming, you know, one of the most powerful and the most hated women in California, for sure, but at the nation at the time. Um, and she had this, these long-lasting impacts because of something that, you know, she was, un, she was so unwilling to give up Malibu and let other people come in that she not only hired men on horseback and gave them shotguns and told them to shoot anybody on sight, but, you know, she took her, her case to the U.S. Supreme Court and she essentially went through, you know, essentially squandered a more than a billion dollars in today's money trying to keep the world out. I mean, she, she was once one of the wealthiest people in California and she died penniless. Um, she was willing to go to the extreme to protect what she thought was her dream. Um, so that's very captivating. It makes you feel like, okay, would I have made those same decisions? Um, how could somebody push themselves that far? And then with with this one, um, it was great to find such a, a stark contrast between two people whose, li- whose decisions impacted millions of other people. You know, Kenyon was somebody who never felt like he got the respect that he deserved and was, you know, kind of angry about that his entire life. Whereas Blue, he always felt his older, one of his older brothers was the favored son. Um, and, you know, his older brother became a war hero. And Blue had this idea then that, you know, his mission in life was going to be to heal, not to hurt. So, you know, essentially making that stark contrast with his brother. So those things are very captivating because that, those are the kind of stories that matter no matter what time period you put them in or what the other aspects of life are that, that's going on around them. And it's just more interesting when you have that kind of personality and you put them in the middle of an outbreak of bubonic plague. Right. Um, so then you then, you know, when you have that kind of out that background, then you have different trends you can write about. You can write about science denialism or you can write about why modern cities are, are so clean. You know, don't think of it when you're in New York City all the time that this is a clean place. But, you know, almost nine million people live in a pretty contained area. And there's not that many outbreaks of, of diseases. Right. You know, I, I, I was amazed doing the research for this book that, you know, it's, it's 1900. There's the bubonic plague. And the fathers of all the main characters, they either – I was amazed at how many of them had, first of all, fought for the Confederacy and owned mm-hmm. slaves and mm-hmm. all these other things that just seemed so antiquated and just from a different world. And you realize how – close that really was and how quickly things changed. And, you know, I think that goes into, there's a lot of unspoken stories and unspoken ramifications of the, the you know, racial history of the U.S. Um, and a lot of that is, is focused on, and rightly so, on the experience of African-Americans and slavery. Um, but I thought it was interesting, too, to see that there was a, a very strong backlash against, you know, Asian-American uh, immigrants and how that experience was so harsh and was so deadly for so many people because of of racism and, and everything else. Right. Yeah. And then when the small outbreak happens in Los Angeles, 
um, than in it was at the twenties. Um, it's a it's a Latino neighborhood. Exactly. It's it always seems to you know it's it's minority communities who bear so much of the brunt of public health outbreaks for, for on one hand and of of fear on the other hand. Um, so when there was an outbreak of bubonic plague in, in L.A. in the twenties. It's not. It was not far from you know where downtown LA is now, Union Union Station. Um, some business owners they fired you know Mexican American workers who had no connection yeah. whatsoever to that neighborhood. You know LA is a huge sprawling place. It's you know it's fifty miles from one side to the other. It's insane that people would think that you know just because of your racial background or your identity that you might somehow that's what makes you contract this disease. So, you know, disease has a way of bringing out the worst in communities. And, and sometimes it also has a way of bringing out the best, which hopefully, you know, this book shows. Right. Yeah. It, it, I'm reminded as we're talking, and I don't remember the specifics of this, but I just, I saw some tweet not terribly long ago. I think it was during when everything was happening with the wildfires in California. And somebody just said, you know, like, this is a good example of how climate change is going to, I know it takes a little bit out of the, the, the sphere of epidemiology, but, you know, in terms of when you think of like large groups being affected, um, how the poor are going to be the hardest hit by that because they aren't going to be able to afford, like, even if it's just like breathing masks, you know, like thinking about the Chinatown in San Francisco in the book, it's like there was a real distortion of correlation and causation in, in white minds in the city. and. And it's clear that, you know, those, those, the conditions in their area were just so terrible. Um, and that, but that was done to them. That wasn't, that wasn't because of them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at the, at the time, um, if you were Chinese in the U S you couldn't become a citizen, you couldn't have all these, all these rights and you couldn't live wherever you wanted to. So, you know, Chinese residents of San Francisco, they were in a very tightly packed neighborhood and one of the ironies is that you would have the mayor um, and others who would talk about the quote-unquote threat that the Chinese pose to the city and, um, you know, would call community members derogatory names and everything else. These were the same people who also owned the buildings that Chinese residents rented, and right. they rented them out at exorbitant rates because they knew, you know, if you were Chinese, there was nowhere else you could go. And in so many ways, everything that Kenya tried to do to prevent the disease, you can understand in one way, in some ways, how much he was motivated by fear himself. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe it wasn't necessarily, though there was some, he was racist in some ways, but maybe it wasn't necessarily all fear of an outside community as it was of the disease spreading. He didn't harbor the idea that others did that, you know, white people somehow couldn't could catch bubonic plague. So he was very aware that the disease could break out. Um, so he did very draconian things. He quarantined Chinatown um, several times. One time so much that, you know, people were close to starving by the end of it. Um, he tried to go door to door and do mandatory vaccinations with, you know, wasn't a real vaccination. And it was a serum that had very strong side effects. It would make someone vomit. It would make them their skin turn red for a while. Um, and it wasn't completely effective. Um, he even had a plan, you know, when that didn't work then, he thought about trying to um, forcibly remove the entire Chinese community to a, a separate island in the bay. And, you know, when that didn't work, he eventually tried to, and he did temporarily, quarantine the entire state of California. 
not let anybody, you know, Asian American or not, leave the state without a signed paper from him saying that they were healthy. And that's eventually what was his, his undoing, was taking such an uh, outlandish step. But um, it's so much of a community that the Chinese community didn't have a voice in their own survival at the time. Um, and no one wanted to believe them or listen to them. You know, they were terrified that um, there was an outbreak of bubonic plague in Honolulu, Hawaii, you know, six months before. And the public health officials there ended up burning all of Chinatown to the ground. And lots of the Chinese there had to live in barracks for, for weeks or months and, you know, shower every day in front of public health officials while they were naked um, and submit to all these other you know, humiliating aspects of, of daily life um, just to survive. And, you know, the Chinese community in San Francisco looked at that with fear and say, said, this could be us next. Today's episode of WMFA is brought to you by Creative Nonfiction Magazine. For nearly 25 years, Creative Nonfiction has been fuel for nonfiction writers and storytellers, publishing a lively blend of exceptional long and short form nonfiction narratives and interviews as well as columns that examine the craft, style, trends, and ethics of writing true stories well told. Learn more at creativenonfiction.org today. Can we talk a little bit about your research process, um, especially in terms of the sort of social and cultural context that you, the story is placed in, you know, when, when you're looking for, obviously, the newspaper clippings and the, and the diary entries and things like that that are giving you the, the real information and meat of the story that's carrying it forward, how you're then kind of filling in the world around them? So um, I was lucky with, with this book and also with the last book, the Malibu book, um, I tracked down family members who had letters and other you know, diaries that weren't public yet. Um, so it was really nice to you know, actually hold a letter written by who ended up being some of the main characters and find out, okay, wow, this is what they thought. And you can, then you can see a newspaper article where they're quoted. And you can really, it's very clear the, pub, like the divide between the private self and the public self. So you can feel that you know, with some legitimacy, you can say this is what they were thinking or feeling then, um, even if it's not in, a, in an article itself. Then from there, I, you know, I was lucky with this book, too, that the public health service, they used to, you know, send telegrams to each other all day long um, because, you know, the Surgeon General was in D.C. And, and this was happening in San Francisco. And I don't know why. It's great that they did it, but I really have no idea why. But they would keep all of those telegrams and then print them in a book <laughs> at the end of each fiscal year. <laughs> so th with this, you could really see, you know, literally minute by minute what they were talking about. Um, but then everything else, just kind of like tracking down the trail of crumbs or whatever it is that, you know, you start having one question of how did the, okay, the bubonic plague was in Hong Kong. What was Hong Kong like at that time? Okay. If you were going to travel from Hong Kong to the U S how would you do it? How much did it cost? What would that be like? You know, how was a how would a Chinese immigrant end up in San Francisco? You know, where did they where did a lot of these immigrants come from? What was happening there at the time? You know, just all these basic questions you can then expand and find out more and more about them in ways you never thought would be possible or or you can lead you places you never thought you would go otherwise. Yeah. And and I'm I'm always curious too, um, the way when you you know when you read books like yours, you get this sense of interiority. Um, 
that you're used to getting from a from a fictional character and and I'm always curious about when it is you know a real person and somebody very far removed from you know our time and place and you can't talk to them and and that sort of thing you know how you're like how one achieves the kind of authorial authority that you need to sort of be in that voice um and and you did touch on that a little bit with the with having the letters and stuff but can you talk a little bit more about that aspect the kind of getting to know them to sort of inhabit them in the prose well one of the one of the best examples i had of that um so when i was writing the malibu book i was trying so hard to um to get into the heads of especially may range um and you know the family at the time they they didn't really know what to think about her um you know she was their great great grandmother um, because she was, you know, somebody who, who, you know, was hated in her lifetime and they were kind of embarrassed that you know, a lot of people thought that she essentially went kind of maniacal and, and maybe a little crazy and, and her single-minded devotion to, to keeping Malibu at, intact as her own private kingdom. And I, you know, I kept on asking them, you know, do you have more? Do you have more? Can you share with me? And they'd share a little and then they'd say, we have more, but we don't know or whatever. And it was literally like two weeks before I had to send in like the final version of the manuscript. And I don't know if it was just like they heard the desperation and took pity on me or what, but they said, okay, here, here's some more. And they gave me a couple more letters. And all the thing, all the quotes I was able to pull from those letters were exactly matched up with who I thought she was. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, I felt like, okay, I do have a good read on this person. Um, but beyond that, you know, letters help a lot. Um, anything that they have written themselves helps a lot to feel like, okay, this I know who this person is. Um, and also, it's amazing how much if you find out about a person's childhood and, and their family dynamics, that helps kind of serve as like the, um, the filter through how they see the rest of their world and the rest mm. of their life. And you can you can make a comparison and you can paint a picture that's not necessarily this is what they felt at that moment. But you can say, you know, he was his older brother was a war hero. The, the older brother was considered the favorite son and he was not. So he was always searching for redemption because some of those are just human emotions and, and natural that, you know, everybody wants to feel like they're doing a good job. You know, everybody wants to feel like that they're making the world better in some way. So it's not that much of a stretch. How are you like just logistically keeping track of all of this information when you're researching? And, and are you writing as you're researching? Uh, so one thing I do, so I'm sure other people talk to you about this. Scrivener is, a, is oh, yeah. an app that I like a lot. I always love to talk about Scrivener. <laughs> yeah, it's it really helps. Um, going from just everything from like making a, like a cork board and mm-hmm. you know the um, index cards and everything to then I you know have a, have a opened a separate um, folder for each chapter and I have one document there that'll just be all the notes for that section and then another one where I'll just try to spell out just a couple sentences where what the arc I want for each chapter to be um, and then you know go kind of have both of those open at the same time so I can go from one to the other um, you know so I'll go through the research and I'll try to do two passes of it you know First of all, just read a bunch of stuff. And as I'm reading, just write down everything that sounds interesting or could be useful eventually. Sometimes I'll see this and it's like, you know, for a 5,000-word chapter, I might have, you know, twenty or 25,000 words of notes. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then, you know, a lot of those notes are useless eventually. <laughs> they were just me learning it for the first place. You know, this is how bubonic plague works. You know, this is why it's called bubonic plague. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, that can be covered in one sentence, but you need to learn, you need to read 10,000 words to be able to write that sentence. Um, so then the second pass is then to go through and bold everything that might be actually useful for the chapter. And other things I might do too that, um, so in the plague book, Kenyon had this habit of writing really, really long letters, like 40 page letters it to people. It seemed that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like really long letters. And he would, cover three months and in one letter you know so you would have to then go and say okay when he's talking about this that needs to go in this time period is the same same time period of chapter four or this time period is the same time period of chapter five so i need to split up my notes to make them correspond to to that time so it's more contemporary of what he's writing you know he, he was big on big proclamations so i might have those down and you know i want to use it once, but then you, you're fearful when you write a 85,000 to 90,000 word book. Like the biggest fear is that you're going to use the same quote twice. Right. So I, you know, color code it. So once it's used, once I have it in the book, I, in my notes, I just put it red. Like you can't use this again, you know? Like, um, so that's, that's the basic kind of, um, just kind of nuts and bolts for each chapter. And then, um, I, you know, I have a, I have a full time job. I've never taken book leave. So I've always just been doing this on the side. So I just wake up very early. I have little kids. Uh, we have little kids who wake up. Like our, our son wakes up at 6. Uh, like as late as so – if he wakes up at 6, that's a good day because sometimes he'll wake up at like 5.45. <laughs> yeah. So I'll wake up like at 4 sometimes. So I'll get an hour and a half before him to work. And it's, you know, it's kind of – it's quiet and you can really focus. And I try to write, you know, three to 400 words a day. Um, because that adds up to, you know, 1,500 words a week, which is 6,000 words a month. And that, you know, over a year, that turns into a book. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those 400 words might not be perfect words, but the next day when I'm rereading it, I'll try to fix it as much as possible and then add as many more words as I can. I think it was Vonnegut or somebody else who said, like, there's two two forms of writers, one who, like, have to get it down perfectly the first time, and the others who, like, are fine to, like, bang it and mash it around until it gets into shape. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm much more willing just to like get something down on paper or on screen and then go back and, and try to fix it as much as possible later. Um, Cause I always, you know, when you start writing, especially, you know, like a long chapter is 5,000 words or so you have to start reading it from the beginning anyway, just to feel like you're getting back into the rhythm. Right. So as you're going through, you just might as well fix it as much as you right. can and then start getting, okay, now I've got some momentum and I can continue making this get longer and, you know, keep the the book covers away from each other. You know, whether it's good or not, who knows, but I'm just going to get something down and then I can, can fix it later. And, you know, that's one of the the things that's both good and and bad about trying to write anyway. You you never know if it's good, right? You know, it might, it might feel good to you. And then six months later, you're like, this is terrible. (laughs) Or it might read, it might seem terrible. And you're six months later, you're like, who knew (laughs) This this isn't so bad. I think it was like Colin Powell or somebody who said that like his hobby was to fix cars uh-huh. because it was like a zero sum game. It's like either it works or it doesn't. <laughs> and in so much of life, that's not true. Yeah. You never get that same satisfaction of like, yes, no, I did a good job. Yes. 
And I think too, with, you know, with the time constraint thing, like, I think that's a really helpful thing for people to keep in mind, you know, if writing is something that they're squeezing into, um, well, not even just writing, just even the specific projects or things that they're squeezing into time. You know, like you, like your day job is still writing. It's just, you can't focus on the book during that time. And, um, mm-hmm. because it, it's so striking just in all the conversations I've had with writers, like, first of all, you think everybody has more time than you and they don't. <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah. well, this person wrote this successful book, so they must be able to just like write all day. And they're like, no, I have like two hours, you know, and it really does just reinforce that truth that of exactly what you said about letting those little those little word counts add up like books get written in you know half hour hour chunks yeah i have i have a friend who's a a tv writer and he has now written movies and stuff and he was writing for a, a successful show um and that you know that took up a lot of time but he still woke up early and worked on like his his feature scripts before that um, so it's no matter what level you're at, whether you're just, you know, you have your day job that you like or you don't, and this is something you do because it's meaningful for you, or you've already reached a level where you get to, you know, write full time, there's always going to be some constraint. There's always something else you, you kind of have to do at the same time. Um, I just don't, you know, maybe there are people who can sit down at nine o'clock and then get up at, you know, 12 hours later and have written, you know, 3000 great words. I'm just not one of them. I, you know, I, I wish I was in some ways, yeah. but I, you know, I get, I get tired. I get mm-hmm. fried out. You know, like you can't maintain that same level of concentration and focus and intense intensity for that long without the work suffering. You know, it's kind of thing like, you know, if you, if you played sports, you're really, you can be really good for two or three quarters. And then that fourth quarter, that's when it's really hard. You're not going to, you're not going to make the same shots. You're going right. to still try. You're going to, that's why it's crunch time. Why that's why the end of the game. But you know, uh, I remember somebody was telling me when I first started working on my first book, and I was freaking out. Like you know, a book is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Right. You can sprint all you want, but it's not going to help you. It's kind of probably going to hurt you. And and I would love to hear um, you being on the other side of this. I I think really often about a friend of mine who's written a couple books now. And he, to- he talked about how, you know, and I'm, I'm working on a novel right now, and that will be my first book, and just that feeling of, like, this is everything. And, like, he, he talked about this moment when he realized, like, there's just going to be another book, and it'll be fun. And, like, you know, it just, like, kind of lowers the stakes of, like, that first project. I, and I wonder if that if any of that resonates with you now that you've done three. And, of course, your first one was more personal, so that must have been yeah. different also. It's, it's a very liberating feeling when you realize that, the world's going to move on right. no matter what, you know, for good or bad. You know, you can think about it no matter what, like the, the final season of Game of Thrones is coming up soon. Yes. In two years, no one's going to care. You know, it's just going to be old, you know, like life moves on. Yeah. So that's a, that's a very freeing thing that it can be, it can be good and it can be, you can do the best job you can in that moment under those constraints. But, you know, five years from now, you're going to be doing something else. It's kind of like, you know, you go to the gym and you're lifting weights it's not necessarily fun to to bench press. Right. Later, it feels good. Um, so just to kind of think on like, okay, there is, there is the you know maybe some of that's just also just getting older is that you realize that you know your life is not as intense and is not as mean as meaningful to you, obviously. But there's a big world out there, mm-hmm. and you know 
it's also freeing too when you start to get reviews. Some people are going to like it and some people aren't. It's not necessarily a reflection of, you know, quality. There's not like some, you know. Objective. Yeah, there's not like some quality deity who then gets to come down and cast cast the judgment. Like you did a good job or you did a bad job or you are you are allowed to call yourself a writer or you are allowed to write a second book. You know, it's, it's very fun to look up what you think are amazing books on Amazon and to read like the one star reviews. It just goes, goes to show like who knows? <laughs> like I I personally don't like Game of Thrones. Other people love it. That's fine. Everybody has different tastes. You know, you you do as we've mentioned a couple times now you have a full-time day job in journalism um which I mean makes you one of like what 75 people at this point. So that's wonderful. <laughs> um at Reuters, uh what does writing books do for you? Um how do you know why do you why do you do that on the side? Um, not in a not in a accusatory. Why on earth would you do this way? But yeah. like, what does it give you in addition to the what you get out of your day job? Well, what's nice, especially with the writing for Reuters, like a wire service, is that you get to play both ends of the spectrum really well. You know, like sometimes when you're writing, you know, I cover Wall Street, I cover um, business trends, all all that kind of stuff. So sometimes you write of something, and it's really it's a great feeling to say, you know, I write this, and then 15 minutes later, it's on the wire, and it's around the world. It's it's very immediate satisfaction. But then sometimes you're like, you know, I'm going to write this, and it's going to go, but you know, it's going to go in 15 minutes. But then three days from now, maybe it's not going to matter that much. So it's nice to do something that's going to hopefully be on the shelves of somebody for a long time, and and have that kind of long lasting thing. And then on the flip side, sometimes you're writing a book. And it takes a long time to write a book and to publish a book. Um, you're going to think, who's ever going to write read this? You know, it's, I'm doing all this work in a small room by myself, and it's never going to connect to somebody. It sure would be nice to write something, have it read, and meaningful, be meaningful in an immediate way. Oh wait, here's here's this wire service <laughs> that I can I can write for. So it's it's really nice to kind of have that like barbell approach. Um, and it's just something like, you know, I always just, I always wanted to, to write long form stuff. And it's nice to go into, you know, look at topics that are just things that are personally interesting to me and make it, uh, it's almost like a hobby. It's, it's fun to do. It's fun to, to research, you know, the plague or it's, it's fun to research the history of Malibu or it's fun to research sleep science, um, which is my first book as all things that personally mattered to me. Um, so it was, it was, you know, if that personal involvement and personal appeal wasn't there, it wouldn't be something I'd be willing to, to wake up early to do. Right, right. And you mentioned that, you know, the fact that your last couple have been historical. Do you feel like that's kind of a direction you're moving in now? I don't know. I think the next, so I'm close to um, selling the next one, which will also be a historical narrative. Um, but then the one after that, it's probably going to be more of a sciency based one, like my sleep book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't know. It's just like I'm a planner, and just naturally, so I kind of already have an idea of what my, like my next two or three books are going to be. Um, you know, maybe somebody else is going to write the write that same idea, and it's going to be amazing. And I'm going to have to say, oh, okay, I'll have to find something else. Right. But I, I kind of have that sense of like okay, I'm going to do this one and then that one. So the next one will be a narrative again. Um, it'll have a science element, just like the, the plague book does. Um, 
but then the one after that will be much more like Dreamland, my first book, which was very much a personal, you know, exploration of of science, but also of like of how culture was changing, how as it related to, to sleep, which is, you know, the most common and unifying thing that we all do. Right. You have it seems like you have such a um, I don't know if you would agree with this from the inside, but for such a steady kind of even keeled approach to your books, it's just like, okay, well, this is my next one. And then, the, and then the next one's after this. And I just say, you just kind of keep, keep taking steps forward. I, I feel like that's what allows you to keep doing it. <laughs> um, like it's one of those things like the, the flame that burns really intensely burns itself out really quickly. Right. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. Some people, you know, do come out with a book every eight to ten years, and the, it's, I'm sure that was a very intense experience for them to, to an emotional, emotionally raw experience to to get all of that out and to put so much of themselves in it. Um, I I just don't, you know, everybody's different. I don't I don't think that's me. You know, I'm much more, you know, kind of the brick by brick brick approach. Maybe it's like you know, I grew up surfing in Southern California. It's I, I was until I was twenty, like pretty much like the bad surfer stereotype of, you know, what day is it? <laughs> I find that very hard to believe. That's, yeah. that's a good piece of trivia to come out of this yeah, conversation. I, like, I, you know, I lived in San Diego for a while and maybe it was just like the friends I hung out with, but it was like, Oh wow. You woke up before 11. You're going places. Oh my God. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, um, I, you know, some of that just helps. Um, and, I don't know. It's hard to see where where your personality and and your outlook comes from. Like my dad grew up on a farm, and he would always tell me that like, you know, whatever you're doing is better than shoveling cow manure right, right. <laughs> on a thirty degree day in in Kansas. So take as much enjoyment of it as you can. Yeah, I, I read this thing um, the other day, and it struck me just what a di- this is such a simple simple but difficult idea of of pay attention to what you pay attention to and it's a similar thing this try to like trying to figure out like how you work best or like what you're interested in these things that are are very obvious probably very obvious to everyone but you but can be very difficult for you to parse out i think that's a really good point like having that that self-awareness and that that mindfulness of like what what matters to you what you let in is is such a big part of what comes out too you know, like, um, if you can focus on just kind of what, what intrigues you, what makes you care. Um, and I, you know, that I think it's very easy to, especially for writers to get, um, to get themselves paralyzed because they, they either think about, you know, this isn't good enough or who, how could I ever write a whole book or who, why do I think I'm the one who's allowed to even write a book? Um, and, you know, and I think everybody cycles through those feelings sometimes. You know, yeah, I grew up um, about 50 miles outside of L.A., and I was always amazed. Like, I had this friend who is like, he was one of the best actors I've ever seen. And, you know, and that's even as, like, kids, he was a great actor. But then even, you know, some, like, college productions and stuff. And he was fantastic, like... And this is even seeing it through as an adult lens of like, you know, seeing people on Broadway and everything else. You're like, wow, this guy was that quality. Wow, you know, yeah. he was, he was big leagues. He could have done it at all, but he never tried. You know, he, he tried in college, but he never made that next push to say like, 
I'm going to go out for additions. I'm going to try it. And it just seems like such a, like a waste to yourself to not try and not do something that might be hard. And, you know, if they tell you no, if they tell you no, who cares? Your, your life's still going to go on. You go down a pretty dark road if, you, if you're looking for that kind of outside validation. I love that. And uh, I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And that makes me really interested to hear uh, your answer to this, which is the, um, to wrap up, this is um, a question I like to always ask people at the end of our conversations, as you've probably heard, uh, which is, what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? That's a really good question. Um, I, I, lis- I like to listen to screenwriter podcasts just because it's fun to think about how other people think and work and, and write. And one guy said, like, he has this quote saying, like, you know, his favorite genre of movies is the type that get made. <laughs> I think it is. It's very satisfying just to have to have completed a task and, and seen it through the whole way. Um, you know, whether... And, and kind of that ability to, once it's out in the world, to to kind of give up ownership of it in some ways. Um, that's kind of satisfying in a way, just to say, like, you know, I, I did something. But in terms of, like, career satisfaction, I think still continuing to write books um, is, is satisfying. Um, I'm interested in starting to, I've started to work on screenplays. I think that's, and who knows if it's going to turn into anything. It's just kind of fun to do. And, you know, I I guess the weird thing too is it's kind of a cliche that you you find different satisfaction in things as like your life, your personal life changes. You know, like I think I I put a lot more into the books and the the feeling of of writing a book and and publishing a book and all that kind of stuff before I had kids. Mm. Because one of the really the best thing about having kids is you don't care about yourself as much anymore. You care about other people a lot more. And this is just something I like writing now is something I do because I'm, you know, I, I know how to do it now and know how to write a book. So much of writing a book, the first book you write is you have to teach yourself to write a book at the same time you're writing a book, which right. is really hard. But then the second and third, you're like, okay, I kind of have my own like system down. So I, I kind of know what I'm doing. I don't know if it's going to be good, but at least I know like, it's not like making Ikea furniture for the right. first time again. You're like, what's this? What the, who does the what now? <laughs> um, you kind of, you know, whether it's quality or not, it's, it's still, it's going to be a couch. And then, like, you know, different different things happen. Like, my dad passed away last year. Lots of other things happen that you just, you see things in a different way, and it's not as much. You just don't have, you have, you're invested in it, obviously, but you're also able to see it for what it is and what place it it takes in your life. Today's conversation was edited by Phoebe Wang and produced by Courtney Ballastier. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier. And writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.